The first case for argument this morning is 20-2118, Bright Data v. BI Science. Mr. Charish. Is it Charish? Is that pronounced correctly? Charish, Your Honor. Charish, thank you. May I begin, Your Honor? Good morning, Your Honors. May it please the Court. I would like to begin today with the settlement issue and then move to the issue of personal jurisdiction. The District Court held that on February 23, 2020, the parties entered into a binding settlement agreement. We all know the facts, but I've got a lot of questions, so let me start with what you started with. I don't want to get you out of line here, but am I correct that if we were hypothetically to agree that there was a valid settlement agreement, that would not implicate personal jurisdiction? I think you are correct, Your Honor. So personal jurisdiction is off the table. Okay, I appreciate it. I agree. Yes. Shall I continue? Yes. Thank you. That on February 23, 2020, the parties entered into a binding settlement agreement in the form of the document that appears at appendix pages 5 to 6, which we call the mediator's proposal. But that mediator's proposal document did not exist on February 23, 2020. Two days later, Bright Data sent the document to BI Science with an email saying, we received the completed settlement. Okay, but we're here reviewing a District Court decision, right? Yes, Your Honor. What's the standard of review? I mean, the real issue, the nub of the issue is mutual assent. So is that not a question that we review deferentially? Your Honor, there are... It's a fact question, right? There are multiple grounds on which we argue that the mediator's proposal is not a valid settlement agreement. Mutual assent is just one of them. And as this Court held last year in PlasmaCam, I would agree, Your Honor, that that is a question of contract formation that is fact-based. But there are other deficiencies in this mediator's proposal document that we submit should be considered on a de novo basis. For one, we argue, and we think the record shows clearly, that not all essential terms were contained in this mediator's proposal. That that is evidenced by the fact that Bright Data sent a three-page document with their implementation mechanics schedule. And even more strongly, the arbitrator himself, Mr. Cornelius, writes in his arbitration award that it is essential to give meaning to this agreement that I add the following three pages of terms. Excuse me for jumping in the middle of a sentence there, but we had here a motion to enforce the settlement agreement. And it's at, I think, 1479 of the Joint Appendix. And then we have an opposition to the motion to enforce filed by your client, which is at page 1547. And significantly, at least to me in there, is in the motion to enforce, there's a long recitation of facts explaining why there was an agreement. But then in the response, there's no challenge, as far as I can tell, to that recitation of facts. And indeed, there are statements, page 1549, the BI agreed, this is in its response, to the framework proposed by the mediator, or the arbitrator, I get mediator. And then BI says it cannot perform as contemplated under the mediated settlement. So getting back to the point that Judge Post was raising about the standard of review here, how in the face of that 
can we say that the judge was wrong here in saying it was a settlement agreement? I'll just add, you had at the hearing Mr. Cornelius saying, I conclude there was a settlement. Putting that all together, I don't see how you can overrule what the judge did here, and I'll let you respond. Thank you, Your Honor. It would be my pleasure. Your Honor, it is true that in the March 25, 2020, opposition to Bright Data's motion to enforce the settlement, that there are arguments made that would assume the validity of the settlement agreements, but at the same time, on one of those pages that Your Honor referenced, on page 1549, as well as on... Do you not agree that reading that response in its totality, the main argument, if not virtually the exclusive argument, was not that there was no settlement agreement, but other stuff? I mean, what is it? You're arguing we should read in a provision that says you can be excused in extraordinary circumstances based on COVID. All of that is predicated on the fact there's a settlement agreement here, and we should have been excused from it. So do you not... Because when you read the transcript from Chief Judge Gilstrap, I think he was kind of incredulous that where is this... Because you did raise it at the hearing. Nobody's disputing that, the question of whether or not there was a settlement or not. And he pointed out that it was not raised before, and I don't think your attorney pushed back on that. I think that, Your Honor, Mr. Finley did push back, and that was at 1659 to 1660. He staked out his position. I think, Your Honor, Judge Schall, that although Judge Prost is correct, the main argument assumes the validity. There are numerous statements at those pages, 1549, 50, 51, and 52, that there was no binding agreement, that BI science always understood, and that there would be further negotiations within this framework. I actually like the quote that you used, Your Honor, Judge Schall, because that is BI science's understanding. Can we just look at... You're saying that in this document, which is the response, the opposition to enforce the settlement agreement, that you specifically staked out a legal argument that there was no settlement agreement at all? Not a binding settlement agreement. Where? I have some quotes for the panel at 1549. BI science agreed to the framework proposed by the mediator as a way to resolve this case. I will try to find it on the page. Yes, that would be the first full paragraph, Your Honors. BI science agreed to the second line. BI science agreed to the framework proposed by the mediator as a way to hopefully resolve this case. That is not a commitment that BI science... What about... And then it says, accordingly, at the bottom of the page, I think this is one of the things that Judge Schall was referencing, BI science cannot perform as contemplated under the mediated settlement at the current time. And it contends it should be excused from performance in light of the impossibility, impracticality of the current situation, meaning the recent uptick in the COVID pandemic. You're absolutely right, Your Honor. There are statements here, as I concede and must, that do assume the validity of the settlement agreement. Getting back to your question, Judge Hughes, I think... I mean, here's the problem I have. You have stray sentences, but they're coming under different legal arguments. If we were talking about whether you preserved an argument for appeal or made it properly, these stray sentences probably wouldn't cut it, would they? I mean, if your response... And also, why, if your response 
was there's no settlement, wouldn't your first argument be point one, there was no legal settlement. Here's the legal standards for a settlement. Here are why we don't have one. None of that's in this opposition. I mean, I take some of your arguments are, are somewhat um, persuasive to me, frankly, about why if you look at the document itself, um, that it doesn't appear like a settlement. It's, you know, it was sent in by the mediator. It's not signed by both parties. It says settlement in principle. That to me, all of that contemplates that the actual settlement agreement is going to be worked out later. But it's the course of conduct after that happens, particularly in this motion, and the response to the motion that, that troubles me. It seems like you actually were proceeding under the impression that you did have a settlement agreement. Why should we conclude that those stray sentences you're going to cite me are not to preserve the argument that there wasn't a settlement? In response, I would say, Your Honor, that Judge Gilstrap decided to accept that as BI Science's position. He states at page 1685 of the appendix during that April 13th, 2020 hearing that I understand the position you've taken today and I certainly respect it. Well, so, yeah, but that's yes, not sir. really responsive, <clears throat> I think, to what Judge Hughes is getting at. Even though Judge Gilstrap accepted it, what you argued in your reply, at a minimum, suggests what the state of play was here. If, in fact, we were to say that there was no mutual assent, it really matters in how we evaluate whether there was or wasn't the fact that you didn't press the, hardly at all, if at all, in your reply. So it goes to, and I think maybe Judge Gilstrap was affected by that. So even if you're right that it wasn't technically a waiver. Yes, sir. Uh, let me ask you about that. I mean, you know, Chief Judge Gilstrap has been around a very long time. Done, I don't know, I think I can hear <coughs> patent cases and probably close to that number of settlements since the vast majority do not go to trial. Shouldn't we consider that? I mean, different courts may have different practices. The federal government may have a different way of construing settlements agreements in principle when they've been mediated and what if that constitutes a real settlement or not. Isn't some deference owed to this judge? And in fact, he said this to your counsel. He said, you've been here for decades. You've practiced before me tons of times. You filed this thing. This thing was filed with me. And even though it said in principle, you know the way things are construed here. You know the way things are done here. And this, to me, was a final binding agreement. Doesn't that matter in this context? I, perhaps it matters, Your Honor, but I don't think at all as a matter of law it is sufficient. And I think very important data points in that respect are the numerous cases that we cited in which there were reports of settlements, including not just settlement in principle, but reports of this case has settled to the courts, including the Eastern District of Texas. And that would be the Cruitt case. Okay, well one thing is that it's a little, it's also, though this goes to the point we've been talking about this morning, was even though you raised it at the oral hearing, in addition to your other arguments about how there are other reasons, even if there is a settlement agreement, you never cited any cases. You didn't raise Texas Rule 11, which is one of the centerpieces of your briefing before us, that it's problematic. I think my recollection is all you said to Chief Judge Gilstrap was disagreeing with the cases the other side had cited. 
So you didn't make any kind of legal argument when you're saying as a matter of law it shouldn't be construed. You didn't make that argument to Judge Gilstrap, did you? Your Honor, the opposition to the motion to enforce does appear starting at page 1547, and I can't explain the tactics of trial counsel. We know you didn't really raise anything there. What about at the oral hearing? You did raise the issue at the oral hearing before Chief Judge Gilstrap, but you didn't make a fulsome legal argument for a motion to leave to file a legal thing. So you're coming up here with all of these cases that you say we ought to conclude as a matter of law that this was not a settlement. None of that was argued to Chief Judge Gilstrap, right? For the most part, Your Honor, is correct. Chief Judge Gilstrap says at page 1676 of the transcript, are you telling me that your position now is that there are missing material terms and there is no binding signature? And that was the position that was brought, and citations are not there. So he said, yes, we're making that argument, but he didn't argue any case law. He didn't cite Texas Rule 11, which is the centerpiece of your briefing here, and he didn't cite any of the cases that you've cited to him. That is correct, Your Honor. Okay, can I ask you just the same issue, but kind of another piece of it, which is the arbitration award here. When I look at the award, so I'm looking at, on your legal question, it said an agreement in principle, and you say they were material terms. It doesn't constitute an agreement because there were so many open issues. So I figured the best place to look for what the open issues were is the arbitration award because those were the issues you were disputing. Is that a fair thing for me to look at? Not necessarily, Your Honor, because what Judge Gilstrap did was, at Bright Data's request, first decide whether or not there was a binding agreement, and then there were disputes how to implement or resolve the 17 terms of what Judge Gilstrap found was a binding agreement. But there were problems of missing material terms that aren't in there that were not within the scope of arbitration, which assumed that the mediator's proposal were the four corners of a binding agreement. I'll accept that for your argument. But nonetheless, if we look at the arbitration agreement and the issues that presumably were raised by you, you know, in terms of the disputed terms, as a way of kind of trying to figure out whether or not there was enough of an agreement, because you agree that, you know, you can have a valid settlement agreement and there could be, you know, little things still left out, either for arbitration or for ironing out in the final, you know, after the settlement agreement. It doesn't seem to me like these issues that were raised in terms of the disputed terms are necessarily, they don't persuade me that, yeah, there was really no agreement. If there remained a serious dispute about these material terms, it really points to the direction there was no agreement. You're not thinking that these were those kinds of terms, right? Your Honor, the terms that were really at the heart of this are reflected in the draft settlement agreements that the parties exchanged. And the key terms that were not in the agreement that were most important to BI science may be found at page 1487, summarized by Bright Data. And the most important one, which is the primary reason why BI science refused to sign the mediator's proposal proffered to it on February 25th, two days after the purported agreement, 
The key is term 12. And that contradicts term 10. Oh, those are those two paragraphs about the path. That is correct, Your Honor. You say the key reason that he didn't sign it. In the email exchanges, the one that seems quite relevant to this, I'm sorry, I'm probably not going to be able to find it. Is it the one relating to approval? Where the mediator set out very carefully. I'm going to go tell the, I'm ready to go tell Chief Judge Gilstrap that we've got a settlement. I don't think he says in principle. I think he says that we've settled this case. Yes, Your Honor. And your response was? Thank you for all your hard work, Bill. Yeah. I mean, you'd think if there was something, if he disagreed with anything that was in that email, it was kind of a notice by the mediator. This is what I'm going to do. This is what I'm going to tell the Chief Judge. I don't think that email says settlement in principle. I think it says settlement. Didn't there seem to be some confusion or discussions about the provision with respect to a 37.5% payment for former BI clients or proxies? Yes. And a question of whether when they were folded in, bright data would unreasonably refuse to accept them. That seemed to me to be a major issue in these discussions that took place after February 20th or 23rd, whatever it was. You're correct, Judge Shaw. And those issues also appear at page 1487. But to get back to your point, Judge Prost, we think what appears at page 1501, which is the email Your Honor is referring to, is critical because there is no list of terms attached. This is what this case boils down to in our view. What Mediator Cornelius writes in this email is that the parties have reached a settlement based on the mediator's proposal, which incorporates the list of terms from Ron that I shared with Eric, although some of those terms are modified in some respects by the mediator's proposal. No one could make heads or tails of that, Your Honor. All I'm suggesting is you can tell me no attorney argument. No one could make heads or tails of this. But he says, unless you object, he says something like what you're saying in the first paragraph. And then he says, unless you object, I will notify Judge Gilstrap of the settlement and request you cancel the hearing. I will tell him a motion to stay is forthcoming, blah, blah, blah. Congrats to you for all getting this resolved. So you think if there was a problem with that, forget what the first paragraph says, but if the first paragraph is what you would like us to construe it as, wouldn't they have said, wouldn't your client have said something other than thanks for all your hard work, Bill? Wouldn't he have said, wait a minute, maybe you ought to not tell Chief Judge Gilstrap that we have a settlement. There's still some questions I have. Here are the questions. Really? I would say really, Your Honor. And we have numerous cases that I think are very persuasive. This same exact thing happened in a Northern District of Cape, Northern District of Texas case called UMB versus Fallujah. The parties were working with the mediator. UMB wrote that it approved both the monetary amount and the settlement and the general terms thereof. The mediator sends an offer and the response is almost word for word what we have in our case. Thank you for all your work on this case. UMB is agreeable to the terms and principle, et cetera. 
Yeah, no, the but court that's found different. It. I mean, that's terms of principle, which is what you emphasize. This says of the settlement, right? I mean, there's a difference between those words. There, there is a difference, Your Honor, but the, the law requires unequivocal, unambiguous, positive, absolute acceptance of a set of terms. That, that is not what 1501 contains, and that is not contained anywhere in the record at no time. Whereas BI Science presented with 17 terms and say, we agree to those terms. Every case on con... Yes, Your Honor, sorry. Let me ask you one other question, which is related to this, which is on the question of Rule 11, of Texas Rule 11, which is, I said, something that you rely on extensively in your brief to support your legal rationale for why there was no settlement agreement. Is there a waiver problem with respect to that issue, given that you never raised that below with Chief Judge Gilstrap? Two points in response, Your Honor. Number one, it was raised with Chief Judge Gilstrap in eight state briefs in which it was briefed extensively. No, 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 no. The state briefs... Wait. Judge Gilstrap has an oral hearing, and he makes a decision. When do those state briefs come in? Afterward, Your Honor. Afterward. Oh, right, right. So I'm talking about what preceded his decision. Yeah, you could have sent him a letter yesterday saying that. It doesn't matter. It doesn't get you out of waiver. Right. So I'll tell you what gets us out of waiver. This is the United States Supreme Court. Yee v. Escondido, 1996. Pfizer v. Lee from this court. Interactive Gift from this court in 2001. This court, as the court said in Interactive Gift, reviews decisions, not arguments. If the issue is preserved and the issue of the validity of the settlement agreement, and specifically whether it contained a binding signature and material terms, was presented and was preserved, as I mentioned, page 1676, that issue is now before this court. Well, don't you think this court would benefit, even if we thought... Wouldn't that at best be a remand for you? I mean, don't you think this court, if it was going to entertain a major argument about Texas rule, that we would benefit from the advice or the determination by the chief judge of the district court before we ruled on that, in terms of him dealing with the issue and how he construes the applicability of the issue? So even if you were right on a waiver, don't you think a remand would be in order here? I think, Your Honor, that it is a legal issue, which would be reviewable de novo. I don't mean in any sense to discount value that Chief Judge Gilstrap would add, but I do believe that it is a legal issue. And I will add, if I may very briefly, that some of the cases like Clarence Energy v. Leasing Ventures, which is almost the same facts as we have here, deal in principle, we're settled, we're settled, yeah, we're settled, let's tell the court we're settled, but then no settlement, court of appeals reversing the district court. Clarence Energy says, this is a Texas Rule 11 case, but you know what? We're going to analyze it under contract principles because it's basically the same. So either way, under Texas Rule 11 or under general contract principles, putting aside Texas Rule 11, as I mentioned a few minutes ago, the court needs to find evidence that BI Science says, yes, we agree to these 17 terms, and the evidence doesn't exist. Since you have demonstrated that you're probably better versed in the record than I. I would hope so, for my sake, Your Honor. Where does Mr. Finley make the argument that there is no signature? 
say, where does he say anything about the lack of a signature in the agreement? I don't recall offhand Mr. Finley saying it. I do recall Judge Gilstrap saying it at page 
at 388 U.S. 395. And what that decision says is, if you have an agreement and it contains an arbitration clause, that is a form selection clause in the contract. But the premise for that is, if you have an agreement. Mm. But what... But Yes, sorry. First, the district court has to determine there's an agreement. And that's where Preston... And the district court yes, made that determination. Yes. And that's what we're reviewing, isn't it? So what Preston versus Ferrer says is, quote, a tax on the validity of an entire contract as a distinct from a tax aimed at the arbitration clause are within the arbitrator's ken. That is, the, you do, the district court needs to find if the parties agreed to the arbitration clause independently. And the reason for that is Federal Arbitration Act Section 4 says exactly that. Not that you have an agreement on the whole, but that you have an agreement on to arbitrate. That's what the... Wait, so is your point is, if there's a question about the validity of the actual underlying agreement, if the parties agree to arbitrate... Correct. ...then the arbitrator gets to decide that. That's what... But that's, that's not what happened here, is it? Judge Gilstrap didn't find that there was a separate agreement to arbitrate whether this was a valid settlement agreement. He found that there was a valid settlement agreement and then sent it to the arbitrator to enforce it. He did. He did. He found that the whole agreement was valid, and he found that the arbitration... And he said at a minimum... As part of... Yes, that's correct. ...the agreement. So what we need to do on appeal under Fifth Circuit authority and under the Supreme Court authority is break that finding into the two pieces. One is, is the whole agreement valid? And the other is, was his finding that at least the parties said that they were going to arbitrate this agreement is valid? And under... But if there's no agreement, then what are they going to arbitrate? So this is where Preston v. Ferrer and the Prima Paint case go to... I was asked. So this is exactly Supreme Court authority. You look at whether the parties ever challenged the arbitration provision separately. And if they never challenged the arbitration provision separately, and it says that we're going... that the arbitrator, the form... Well, if they never challenged it separately, if they're challenging the existence of the agreement in and of itself, of course they're challenging everything about whether there was an agreement of itself. That is not what the Supreme Court says. The Supreme Court says... Is there any focus at all on this argument to Judge Gilstrap that where you say, well, even if there's a dispute about the validity of this agreement, you should send that dispute to the arbitrator? Extensively. Extensively. If you look at the transcript from April 13th, I was the one arguing the motion, and I said, we think primarily... Give us a page site. Okay. Excuse me, Your Honor. Let me make sure I have the... I want to make sure I have the... Okay. So we're at 1652. 1652? Is the transcript from April 13th here. And let me just find the place where I'm starting to talk. Okay. At 1657, Mr. Harkin starts at... That's me? At line 15. Your Honor, I think there's potentially two ways of looking at it, but I think... Essentially, I think you are correct. We're looking for a declaration as to the fact that Exhibit A is the settlement agreement, and that constitutes a complete and binding settlement agreement between the parties, and there is an arbitration provision in that that should be enforced. Other disputes about the agreement can then proceed to the arbitration... That's exactly right. Nobody's disagreeing with that. Right. We're looking for a declaration that there's a settlement agreement. That's the first question. And that constitutes a complete and binding settlement agreement between the parties. That's what we're all agreeing with. 
and that there is an arbitration provision in that that should be enforced. Absolutely. I have no qualms about that. Any other disputes about the agreement can then proceed to arbitration. That's exactly the way I see it. Can we complete the sentence that I argued to the court, which based on the court's declaration enforcement of the at least arbitration provision of the agreement will allow us to work out any further problems that the parties have with each other, that I was saying if you at least find that the parties agreed to arbitrate. That's not what that means. That means if you have further disputes about the settlement agreement he just found valid, the arbitrator can work them out. I think you're wasting your time on this argument. I certainly understand that I'm fighting an uphill battle on this point. Let me go to a couple of other points that we've raised with your friend. One is, do you think there's a waiver of the Rule 11 argument? We do think there's a waiver of the Rule 11 argument. Why isn't he right that it's a legal question and there are arguments that are made here that weren't necessarily made below, different legal arguments thrown in on appeal? Why is he not right that he didn't have to preserve this appeal? I apologize, Your Honor. Who is the he in your question? We're saying that he waived his right to raise on appeal the rule, your colleague on the other side. I see. And could you ask me one more time? I was not following. What I asked him was, he makes a big deal here in terms of making this legal argument as to whether or not there's a valid settlement of invoking Texas Rule 11. Correct. Now, you disagree with him on the merits. Correct. I think there are arguments on both sides. But if we were to agree with him on the merits, is there an argument to be made that he can't present that argument to us on appeal because that was not an argument made to Judge Gilstrap? Right. So Judge Gilstrap made the decision to send this to arbitration, and then the arbitration was participated in, and there was an award that came out of the arbitration. And up through that point, no Rule 11 Texas argument or signature argument had been made. Then a judgment was entered in this case. And up through that point, no argument was made to the court that there needed to be this signature requirement or Texas Rule 11. Only after the appeal was first noticed in this case and there was a motion to stay the enforcement. I know the scenario of the facts. My question is, what is the legal impact of that in terms of whether or not there's a waiver? I believe there is a waiver as a result of that because it wasn't presented to the district court in a way that could be proposed. But it's a legal argument in support of a position they preserved. Right? They preserved it. Let's just assume. I don't want to get in a fight with you about whether they preserved it or not. Let's just assume they preserved the argument that this isn't a binding settlement agreement because there's no signature and there's material terms absent. There's at least reference to a signature by Judge Gilstrap. I don't know if that came out of the blue or if it was argued somewhere in the transcript that we didn't see. But let's just assume that that was their argument. This is not a binding agreement because there's no signature from them and there's material terms missing. If on appeal they can come up with additional legal support for why the no signature is relevant to contract formation, why can't they offer that as additional legal support? Judge Gilstrap ordered this to an arbitration based on the arguments that were presented to him. You know what? This arbitration nonsense is not answering the questions. What? Oh, I'm sorry. Well, I don't care about the arbitration because 
What we're trying to determine is if there's a valid settlement agreement in the first place. What happened to enforce it at arbitration is not what I'm trying to ask about. So if the argument is there is no valid settlement agreement because there's no signature um, and there's no material terms, which was preserved below, why on appeal can't they argue that Texas Rule 11 requires a valid signature? The reason I've been bringing up the, the arbitration is because the position changed at that point. So I don't that, then, care. then it wasn't. I understand. I understand what you're understanding. So I my my understanding is that there was an argument presented to the judge that he had a certain set of arguments that he worked off of that he reached a decision on, and that had and a, his decision yeah. was that it's a valid contract. Correct. Um, so presumably he determined that the signature requirement wasn't you know binding on him. And that there were no material terms missing. Because if there was a valid signature requirement yeah. and there are mandatory terms missing, then there's no contract, right? Well, I, I would disagree with that, Your Honor, because... No, 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 no. Let me ask you this hypothetically, okay. not on the facts of this case. Yes. If this agreement, we call it the agreement, and so right. assume it was a settlement, was required to have two signatures right. and was required to have all mandatory terms, but it's not disputed that there are mandatory terms missing then that's not a valid settlement agreement, right? That's true. If okay. there are mandatory terms that you needed in the, the agreement that are missing, whether even or not there's a valid signature, s- even if they're signed, but there's, a, there's something that absolutely means the parties didn't reach a, a conclusion on material terms, that absolutely would mean that you don't have an agreement. And if right. under Texas law there's a signature requirement and there's no signature, then it's not a valid contract. So under Texas Rule 11... No, no, no. I answer my hypothetical. I don't want to get into this debate about it. Yes. You, can, you can move on to that if you want. If Texas law requires it, assume it does, that there be a valid signature, and then there's you, no valid signature, then it's not a contract, right? If it requires it, and there is no something that Rule 11 would consider meets the signature requirement, that is a debate that we have, but that you can have other affirmances, including, by the way, Mr. Moyle's signature that he did on March 25th saying that he had agreed to the framework from okay. Mr. Cornelius. Let me move on to um, the other, one of the other arguments your friend makes is that there were material issues that were unresolved. Right. One of those are the arguably uh, theoretically conflicting paragraphs about the, uh, the 044 patent. And I forget right off the top of my head. Okay. The other one. So why don't you address, and you know it, the sure. main, uh, his main arguments about the material provisions that weren't resolved. So there was nothing. So, so what we will say is, there what that argument was never raised in the first instance about the, there being some conflict between terms ten and twelve. What are we raised in what first instance? The, the, when they when there was a decision when we said we're going to move to enforce the settlement agreement, oh, okay. so they never said we didn't agree. We think there's a conflict between ten and twelve. This is an appellate type mm-hmm. argument. This wasn't an argument. This was raised, I think, for the first time after the judgment was entered. Um, the only thing they argued in the first instance, or Mr. Finley did at the 13th, and, the, and what was briefed was this idea that you know you need that not all the dates were put in. There was no discussion about the conflict of uh, the, the patent provisions, and, and there is no conflict of the patent provisions because one says we're not going to start challenging the patent, and the other one says you're going to assign the patent to us. Those that's a belt and suspenders type of a situation. I mean that that's that's not a contradiction. They don't. You can do both those things. We can not challenge the patent. They can then assign the patent to us. So 10 and 12 are not inherently contradictory terms. Um, in fact, what they have said, by the way, subsequently is what we later in August, they said what we really meant to do, we didn't tell anybody this earlier, 
But what we really meant to do is give you a license to the patents. We didn't. We weren't going to transfer them to you. We we're going to give you a, a license Wait, to where, the patents. Where did that argument come up? This is in the. This is what they their explanation for what they, why they didn't agree to term twelve. They started to talk about it in August. In of August, 20th. we're before whom? We've got three different things. We've got yes. the gill strap stuff. We've got the arbitrator, right. and then we've got. <coughs> this was not raised in the arbitration or originally in the gill straps court. This was an explanation that was filed in August of. 2020. Do we have it in the appendix here? Yeah, this, excuse me, Your This is, uh, this would be, just one second, please. I think this is subsequent to the entry of the judgment when, the, when there was an appeal. There was a motion to stay um, that was filed by Bioscience. And I think that's the first time there's an explanation of, um, uh, of, of, where they were saying, actually, we intended to license this instead, and I'm just trying to find the... Well, the docket sheet does suggest the number of events took place after the appeal of the right. So, So, I mean, for my purposes, all I'm saying is there was no argument ever made before the judgment that said we did we did not agree that we, we that these were contradictory terms. That, that that's there, Mr. Moyle did a declaration in March of 25 of 2020, a month after the settlement happened, where he said, we agreed to the framework. He just, we agreed to Mr. They had in the 17 terms, and he just said, we agreed to the mediator's framework, just like he testified Do you think to. the framework is the same thing as the settlement? At that time, in March, he they called it a framework, and then he also called it settlement terms. He refers to it both ways, okay, in the declaration and in the brief. On April 13th, they start to, to pivot and saying, well, what we mean by framework is there's too many details to work out. And their argument at that time, Mr. Finley starts to argue is, in that transcript, is that the fact that there are dates to work out mean maybe that we never really reached an agreement. You will see nothing in that transcript about uh, a contradiction of terms 10 and 12. Okay. Um, we're over time, but we gave, we spent a lot of time on the other side, too. So um, why don't you, if you want, yeah. it's up to you if you want to turn to your cross appeal. Thank you. So in the cross appeal on this case, there was just an error made in the uh, a finding of indefiniteness, and, and um, it's claim 108 of the 044 patent. And it has a preamble that sets out four components of it that are the architecture of a system about uh, proxies. And what that says is there's a customer's, quote, first device. Then there is a network server called a first server. Then there is a, a tunnel or proxy device called the second device. And then there's the, the second server, which is a web server. And that's all set out in the preamble. And what the preamble says is it's a method by the first and device. The pre- and there's, there's no dispute that the preamble is limiting. Correct. Case, right? Correct. Nobody's disputed that. Nobody's disputing that. All right. So Chief Judge Gilstrap had a problem with this via a second device identified. Right. Um, and the other side, kind of a variation of that argument, or more, is also, I, as I understand it, and you correct me, that there's no reference to the first, what the first device is doing here. Well, so I, I can't. Yeah. I mean, I've read this twenty times. These words over. Tell me, tell me why Judge Gilstrap was right. What is the meaning of via a second device, and what is the first device doing in the limitations A through E? So, in in it, the way this works is that the claim one hundred eight is is all of the steps of claim one hundred eight A through E are are the method steps by the sec, via the second device. None of those steps are being performed by the first device. In fact, two of the steps talk about an interaction between 
the, the method performing element and the first device. So if you look at 108B, it says receiving a second request from the first device. So you know it's not the first device that's performing the method steps because that's that's the one that is that well, is providing well, so the request. So where is the via the second device, not in A? A just sends sending the second device identifier to the first right. server. It's not B, as you say. Where where is where is the work? being done by via a second device. So what happens is it's the preamble that sets it out that says it's a yeah. method for fetching and then you have to read into the claim and where you see it says via a second device. That that's the method is via a second device is in the preamble. And then what we've right. what we've it's showed Yes. Okay. And so then what we showed uh, in the brief uh, is that when you look at the the specification and you look at how it's laid out all of those steps, the, the, the only way that the claim makes sense, it doesn't, teach, it doesn't say sending via a second device, receiving via a second device, but they all line up with the second device. They, they are all method steps that are being performed by that second device. How and do we know? Can we just look at the claim for a minute? Tell sure. me, point to me something in the claim that says what you're saying here. Well, so, what the claim itself just says that it's a method for fetching, and it says via a second device. And then when you look at the steps, you do have to understand it in the context of the patent as a whole. Like you, you go to the patent and you find out, well, what is it that would be sending the second identifier? And we've showed you uh, figure 5B, for instance, where you can actually line up all of, the, all of the parts of the claim with that tunnel device that's the second device. And that's what we had expert testimony about it. And we say, look, when you look at the specification um, under Phillips, you, you're supposed to do that. And you can find out that, well, what what makes sense to do A, B, C, D, and E that's listed in the preamble? Because the method has to be set out as in the preamble. And there's only two choices. It's by a first device and via a second device. And we know this isn't by the first device because it says it's interacting with the first device. So the only other choice about what's performing the method is via the second device. Where, where does it say interacting with the first device? So... Method step B, receiving a second request from the first device. Okay. So it's not the first device. And then step C, uh, in response to receiving the first content, sending the first content to the first device. And so this is something that's sending back and forth to the first device. Um, your argument, as I recall it, leads very strongly with presumption of validity, yada da, Phillips, you should try to preserve the validity of the patent. That's not really consistent with either Phillips or certainly not what the Supreme Court told us about obvious uh, about in Nautilus. So you're not suggesting that we don't understand it, but we should put big thumb on the scale or foot on the scale because we're here to preserve validity. No, I, I, I'm no. We're not. We're not advocating. Your honors deal with this all the time. I'm absolutely not advocating that we depart from the Nautilus uh, footnote ten that talks about. It, it uh, talks about how you determine Section 112. We're, we're not advocating for that. We are just saying that the, the which is true that in a challenge that's brought to your honor after the after the patents issued, we it, even Nautilus says it in that same footnote 10. We still are entitled to a presumption of validity. It is still the the challenger's burden to prove that there's not definiteness here, <coughs> and the district court's ruling is reviewed de novo. I mean, those are all correct uh, assessments. The point is, if Except, what are we to make of it? This is yet another 
can of worms, but <coughs> de novo, what about most of the argument, as I understood it from reading the record below, was that most of your points were coming through your expert testimony, not through pointing at the claims and not through pointing at the specification. And Judge Gilstrap rejected your expert's testimony. What do we do with that in terms of standard of review? Yeah, so we certainly had an expert who testified to this, and this is a form of extrinsic evidence, so there would be a deference about the decision to accept or deny that. Where I would disagree with Your Honor is that we did not just rely on the expert. The expert did set out that. No, I understand that. I understand. I didn't mean to suggest that. We pointed out, we used, in the original briefing, we looked at Figure 5B. We looked at how different claims line up with each other. We did all the things you do in the intrinsic record to show that you really do have a reasonably certain understanding of this. There's only two choices in the claim, Your Honor, which is it's a method by the first device or it's a method via the second device. And once we can show it's not the first device, we think that's reasonably clear at that point. How could it be otherwise? All right. If you want to reserve your two minutes. Thank you. All right. Yeah, we're going to give you back some time. I'm trying to keep it even, and I'm not sure how good I'm doing in that regard. But why don't you give me four minutes for rebuttal. Let me just focus, Your Honors, on the point about the assignment of BI Science's prized 244 patent, which is not related to the GeoSurf residential proxy network, but relates to its advertising intelligence line of business and is the heart and soul of that business, which would be lost if the mediator's proposal was affirmed as a valid and binding agreement. And Your Honors wanted to know when this issue was first raised, and it was raised in that very page that I cited, Your Honors, to 1487. That's where the negotiation history is reflected. And Bright Data, in its motion to enforce the settlement agreement, is talking about all of these terms that BI Science was advocating for in the context of the negotiations, one of which is what BI Science had in mind all along, and that is that BI Science is to provide to Bright Data, here Illuminati, a perpetual royalty-free license to the 244 patent. That is what BI Science thought it was agreeing to within this framework, and then two days after they agreed to the framework, they got the document, the mediator's proposal, which didn't say a royalty-free license, but said that this patent, which is its crown jewel, would be assigned, which was not a term to which it could agree. That would destroy the business. We do believe that Terms 10 and Term 12 are not belt and suspenders. Term 10 refers to the 244 patent not only as BI Science's patent. And where did you first raise this? This contradiction argument, Your Honor? This contradiction argument, Mr. Harkins is correct, was raised only after the judgment, after the initial judgment on July 2nd of 2020. But we believe that under Padilla v. LaFrance, these are two terms that can't be reconciled. Extrinsic evidence would be required. If the court looks at a document and says, is this a contract, and you can't figure out how to apply it, then the law says it's not a contract. In my remaining time, Your Honors, I would like to revert to the issue which clearly is on Your Honor's minds, and that's about what was BI Science's position at the time 
February, March 2020. Did it believe there was a settlement or not? And I submit, Your Honors, that the clearest, most impactful assessment of what BI Science's position was comes from Bright Data. And what I'd like to do in the time remaining is to read to you what Bright Data told Judge Gilstrap over and over about what BI Science's position was. BI Science steadfastly refuses... You know. Give us this page. Absolutely, Your Honor. 1482. And so this is from what? This is the very motion to enforce. Okay. 1482. Yes. I'm going to try to find exactly where on the page. And as the clock winds down, hang on. It would be the second to last line. BI Science steadfastly refuses to confirm the agreement. And I think elsewhere on 1482 as well. But I'd like to move on to my next citation. And that is page 1851. I see, though, that I'm out of time, Your Honors. Well, just make the point. Tell us what you want us to look at here. If I may, I think it would be hard for me in any reasonable amount of time to find on the pages what I would like to do, if given the opportunity, would be just to read some quotes and tell the court where to find them. Okay, sure. All right. Thank you, Your Honor. BI Science steadfastly refused to perform under the agreement or even acknowledge its validity. That's 1851. BI Science will continue denying... Is this all coming out of their motion to enforce? It is out of their motion to enforce. And then they filed two more motions to enforce and a motion to sanction BI Science. They were so incensed. Before we had the hearing for Gilstrap or after? When in time were the other motions? One motion to enforce before and then two more motions to enforce and a sanctions motion. They told Judge Gilstrap over and over again... Two more motions to enforce, but this was after the oral argument before Judge Gilstrap? Correct, Your Honor. Well, yeah. The cat was out of the bag in the motion before Judge Gilstrap where they did raise the issue of we're not agreeing that there's a settlement there, right? So what happened afterwards was they heard what you heard and there's no dispute about the point that Mr. Fidley was making before Chief Judge Gilstrap, right? I understand your point, Your Honor. 1482 is their original motion to enforce. Okay. I take that. I take that. Okay. The other citations... And then I think the way the other citations read is that at no time did BI Science... But you take my point. I do, Your Honor. Okay. All right. Well, your time is up since you haven't dealt with the cross-appeal issue. Correct. This will be Mr. Milliken. Oh, you think you've got his time too. All right. Well, just understand if you raise it, then he's going to have two minutes of rebuttal, but that's fine if you want to argue. This is one of the reasons we don't like split arguments here. 
May it please the Court, Your Honors, if you have questions on the indefiniteness issue, I'm happy to address them. Otherwise, I'd be pleased to rest on briefs. No. Thank you. Thank you, Your Honor. 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 Thank you, Your Honor.